Hello and welcome to Sony Music Presents Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett. Joining me today is a very special guest, Midnight Oil's Rob Hurst. The Oils have just begun releasing studio recordings for the first time in almost 20 years. Their new themed mini-album is called The Macarada Project. You might have already have heard the singles Gadigal Land and First Nation. The work is a genuine collaboration between the band and Indigenous artists. Just to give you some background on what the Macarada Project's about, after centuries of struggle for recognition and justice, 2017's Uluru Statement called for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Australian Constitution and the establishment of a Macarada Commission to supervise agreement-making and truth-telling between governments and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Makarata is a Yolongu word describing a process of conflict resolution, peacemaking and justice, or a coming together after a struggle. I'm very pleased to have Rob with us today in this episode, which marks the release of a very powerful collection of songs. Rob, it's great to have you on Time to Talk. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure. Now, I-, I want to talk about a whole range of things with you, but um, the Makarata Project, coming together after a struggle... Sean, as you may know, the Makarata forms part of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which mm. was this incredible document that was handed to the government three years ago now and unfortunately was thrown in the two-hard basket almost immediately. Um, I mean, this is an extraordinary document which, you know, comes after many, many years of First Nations people trying to um, uh, arrive at a situation between uh, non-Indigenous and Indigenous Australians, one of justice, um, one of reconciliation. And the idea of the statement, um, which was presented um, by Pat Anderson and Professor Megan Davis, um, uh, was to uh, have it enshrined in the Constitution. There doesn't seem to be any particular movement now from, from the federal government to that end, so we're just doing our bit. And um, what actually happened was with the oils was we we got together for this songwriting session um, about a year ago, knowing that we were going to record again after almost twenty years. And and the songs that I brought in and Jim, of course, brought in a treasure trove of stuff as he always does. Pete had some new songs, but we found out we realised that seven or eight of the songs were on the the same kind of topic of this Uluru statement of the heart. And um, so that's why we decided to quarantine them from the rest of the songs and make a, a discreet album based on on this issue and uh, which you know which we think is the defining issue of our time because um, as non-indigenous people we really can't go forward in this country until that full reconciliation and ju- process of justice has been completed we talk about First Nations people and there's a generational trauma there and, you know, scarring that exists to this day. How do you feel we've progressed as a culture in terms of recognising that? Look, it's been a long time coming. Um, there's unfinished business here and uh, and a lot of great people are trying to move uh, towards uh, a process whereby um, we can get to the next stage. I mean, look, look, look at what's happened over the, the decades. You know, there was the... Uh, the Larrakia petition, there was the Yakala petition, the Barunga Statement, um, the Redfern Address. Going back further, there was um, Goff and Vincent Vignari. Mm. Uh, further back again, the Wave Hill walk-off. Um, then coming forward, uh, there was um, uh, a push to um, 
say sorry to uh, First Nations people who had been removed from their families and their homes, uh, which Kevin Rudd finally addressed. Um, and so it's, it's been an almost exhausting process to get to a point which we should have a long time ago. Um, and uh, there is no finer document that enshrines this wish, these hopes and this need than the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It literally weaves together the ancient and modern identities of this country better than any other document. It was wonderful to see you guys playing Canberra. Would that be maybe a year or so ago now and you had that behind you, the draft of it behind you uh, in the stage there? We actually took the, um, the Uluru Statement projected behind the band on our entire European tour last year. We played festivals and um, and we had to explain in various languages to the folks in Europe what it all meant. But there was great enthusiasm when people realised what the statement was about. And, and of course, particularly in countries like um, France and Germany and Northern Europe, you know, people are fascinated by their politics, perhaps even more so than folks are here. And, and uh, so that kind of filled in the gaps. Even though we weren't playing uh, Midnight or New Midnight or songs from Macarada on that tour, in fact, we only played one New Midnight or song, a song by Jim called Tarkine, which will be on the album, which is already recorded, but will, will come out next year now because of COVID. Um, there were, of course, a lot of songs from the back catalogue on the topic, songs, well-known songs like um, Bull Roarer, Beds of Burning, um, uh, The Dead Heart and, and many others. It's very moving when you listen to the Macarada Project and you have um, this exchange between you, yourselves and First Nations artists, but when we get to the final track on the record, when you actually have these artists with you read the statement and then you move into a new song of yours, Come On Down, it's a very poignant ending to the, uh, the album, isn't it? You know, we're so lucky to have really high-profile readers of the statement, um, folks like Adam Goods, uh, actor and singer Ursula Jovic, uh, Pat Anderson, who was one of the architects of the statement itself, Troy Casadelli, extremely well-known, of course, and none other than uh, Adam Goods, you know, who um, is an extraordinary fellow, very humble but amazing sportsman, and they all um, were kind enough to devote their time to come down to the studio and read parts of the statement, and and that's as it should be. I mean, these, this, this the statement is about their lives, you know. Obviously, we're all in this together, but the statement describes uh, their lives of their people now and their ancestors better than any other document. So it was great to have them come down and um, Jim and Martin provided a kind of a soundscape behind their readings as well, which sets up the tone. It's quite an ominous piece of music behind the reading, but it, it actually sets up the tone for the final song, which is almost a campfire song, once again by Jim, called Come On Down. It's, a, it's, it's as simple as a Tom Petty and the Heartbreaker song and can be can be played with acoustic guitars around a campfire and after quite a serious intent of the album, it's actually the perfect song to take out the mini-album. I heard Stan Grant on there too, I think, Rob. And Stan Grant, how could I forget, yeah, who, you know, is the most eloquent man talking about this very topic. Yeah, yeah, he's got wonderful tone to his voice too when I hear him start to read uh the, you know, the script that goes into the track. It, it's it's interesting with you guys. You've always been a relatively close shop creatively, apart from the producers you've worked with. Um, on this uh, album, 
the, the First Nations people that contributed, did they get to co-write with you? How did that work? Yes, they absolutely did. For example, um, take, take a couple of songs of mine, uh, Gadigal Land, which was already released as a single and a film clip, and uh, First Nation. When I brought them in, right from the very get-go, I said to the band, if we, if we are, if Midnight Oil is going to have a crack at these songs, and I'm very glad we did because I thought that they, when I wrote them, I thought they were intrinsically Midnight Oil songs. Yeah. Um, if we're going to have a crack at them, we need to leave sections of the songs for contributions because if we get folks in and uh, they say, I like the song but I, I actually want to do my bit, then we need to allow for that and not be too prescriptive about it. And that's what happened. For example, on Gadigal land, I went looking for a someone who actually spoke the Gadigal language. Gadigal uh, were actually quite a small clan around Circular Quay when those 11 ships arrived all those years ago at Port Jackson. and They're part of the greater Aora Nation, which is around Sydney Harbour, and there's quite a few clans. But um, we actually found the marvellous Joel Davison, Gadigal poet and teacher, who came down and listened to the track and then went away for a month, thought about it, got permission from his family and elders and came back and delivered that marvellous piece in language in the middle of Gadigal land, you know, which just makes the track. Um, and then uh, on on First Nation, um, we had um, none other than Tasman Keith, who's uh, a young rapper. He's actually uh, hip-hop. He comes from hip-hop royalty because his dad was uh, YRMC, one of the founders of hip-hop in this country. But he um, came down from his hometown of Bowerville, which is in the Nambucca Valley, northern New South Wales coast, came down. And initially we played him Gadigal Land as well, but then First Nation, he said, well, First Nation is, is the song I really would like to have a crack at. He said, just put the song on a loop uh, for an hour and I'll work something up now. So he sort of jotted down various lyrics for an hour and we went and did something else. He came back, he said, I'd like to do it now. And then um, perfectly he just put down this rap part, which appears in the middle of First Nation and and which, once again, you know, makes the song so much stronger and I can't hear the song now without it. But it was also a learning process for our band because we hadn't, as you say, Sean, we haven't really worked with very many collaborators over the years, particularly those from the hip-hop or rap community, and to see how it's done with that accuracy um, was was really quite an eye-opener, really great. Hearing Jessica and Tasman on First Nation was really powerful and it's very powerful hearing Pete sing those lines, when are you going to say the word invasion out loud? And then you talk about appropriation and reconciliation. Yeah. You know, the, the lyric writing on this record is so nuanced and direct. It really is uh, very moving when you hear those words put in that format. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and even more so with our collaborators. For example, I mentioned a few times on on um, on Gadigal Land, Dan Sultan came in and played some guitar and sang along, alongside Pete, and he also sings in a another song by Jim called Change the Date where he takes a couple of verses. And um, um, But, you know, I'm heralded, Dan let go this scream just before the brass comes in in the middle of the song and everyone in the studio just jumped backwards, you know, because I think um, without speaking for the others, I think we all, we all felt, and I certainly did, that within this one screen there was 232 years of anger and frustration, you know, that um, First Nations, the first Australians people were still, um, you know, in a, in a situation where 
their incarceration rate in the country was much higher than white folks, um, that, that the, the terrible days of a separation of families is still being felt with as it comes down the line, um, that all sorts of diseases and the curse of petrol sniffing and suicide rates are still completely out of proportion compared to non-Indigenous people in this country. So there's so much there's so much further still to go. I don't mean to be total Jeremiah about there being incredible advances and, and particularly in the arts, you know, um, the new generation of First Nations musicians um, and uh, authors, playwrights, dancers, filmmakers, uh, educators, it's just incredible. So it's not entirely bleak, but there's a long way to go there. But yeah, um, that um, all, all of our collaborators on all the songs, um, you know, um, really made the material what it is. And we can't hear the songs now without those collaborations. And we realise because we've been such a cocoon, that is the band after so many years, that perhaps this is something we should have done a lot, lot earlier, you know, because everyone brings an amazing wealth of talent to the material. It's interesting, Peter said a little while back that uh, things are getting said in rap and hip-hop that aren't getting said in rock, which is becoming quite stale, tired and cliched. Um, do, do you feel that way about hip-hop and rap? Yeah, that, exactly. And, and I, I, I humour myself sometimes to think that if Midnight Oil was starting now, we would much we would be in much more in that kind of genre with those kind of beats. Um, take someone like uh, Briggs and Trials, you know, mm. Um, their albums and their material are incredibly powerful, very political. Um, you know, they don't. Um, there's there's no room for misinterpretation with their music, and it's quite extraordinary. And um, there are so many acts like that coming from First Nation community all around the world, and they are uh, not not only. I mean, there are there are there are certain bands as well from communities which are putting the case very strongly for reconciliation and you know locally obviously people um like john butler you know has, has been very strong and um and and some of the folks that have been around for quite a long time whether it be shane howard who ex actually been out in the desert even longer than us making friends out there in the western desert with goanna and his own career um but um yeah, bands like Rage Against the Machine and others. There's, there's a whole lot of bands that have been very strong on this, and and um, you know we're we're very proud to be just part of that group. When I heard Gallical Land, I honestly thought this is the best comeback single I've heard since Bruce put out The Rising. <laughs> uh, just the, the the energy and the playing. It, it's sort of it's clearly Midnight Oil. I mean, that song could be dropped in the middle of. Uh, you know, uh, one of your compilation records as just a classic oil single. I, I kind of hear elements of the Saints in there, um, a little bit of ACDC with that great riff. Did you guys feel that when you dropped a brand new single, this has really got to make a statement? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were we were guided about what to release first, but I think in the end, Gadigal came up so strongly, and as you say, Sean, it, it does have some of the classic ingredients. Of, of a song by our band, including really strong brass, and you mentioned Saints, and mm. they, were, they were amazing at it, of course. They were probably the best as far as rock, tough, angry brass, and that's what we wanted and we got. Um, and also, you know, lyrics which um, um, Pete spits out, you know, but also in collaboration with Kalina Briggs, who came in and sang with Pete 
on the last verse and singing songs like We Don't Need Your Strychnine and, you know, mm. really hardcore lyrics like this. Um, but still with enough melody, you know, um, we're all suckers for melody in our band as well as we are for big beats and message and the politics and everything, you know. It's, um, and I, I mentioned Joel Davison coming in, coming in as well and Dan Sultan. So uh, that song I actually had, Sean, for about 10 years and in different stages and it was literally pieced together over the years, and you know, and, and to actually have it come out so strongly in the end with, as you say, that kind of um, Akadaka or, or Angels really hard riffing guitars by Jim and Martin and, um, you know, great lead vocal by, by Pete and all our collaborators, um, our brass and, um, you know, it was really, yeah, the song was stronger than I ever imagined it would. It was actually, it was actually the song actually started many years ago with that, the line that you hear in the middle where Pete and Dan Sultan sing, um, uh, in the land where time stands still, in a land that's in a spell, every day since the day you came is a day of rage. And the song kind of grew out from that middle line, which is kind of wow. unusual for me as a songwriter because I normally try to get a first, great first line or a chorus first and then flesh it out from there. You're right, it's very unusual, isn't it, for a song to develop from the inside out. It was a line I, I heard attending an, um, an environmental um, get-together where Bob Brown was speaking and there were a whole lot of First Nations people there and I got talking to them and that's, that's what one of the elders said to me and I thought, right, I'll keep that. <laughs> I'm curious about your songwriting process because I, I know that you are a bit of a tinkerer. <laughs> well, the, the trouble is, <laughs> you know, the longer you do, you've been doing this, the more you tinker because you, you know you're still you're trying to uh, at least equal, if not exceed, you know what what you've done, which is what we all strive for, of course, but it gets harder and harder. So what kind of happens with you, Rob? I mean, when you have an idea for a song, are you quite happy to let it percolate slowly, sometimes over a decade, or are there other times when you say, no, I'm, I'm actually going to jump in here and write this thing in three hours? How does it work? Yeah, they, they, they percolate and they marinate and, um, you know, they they sometimes sit in a jar of formaldehyde for years. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but I know immediately after I've gone away from a song, come back, I, I can immediately with fresh eyes see the problem with the song. Yeah, and and I think that's the secret with all writing is you know you if you just sing down for hours and hours, you can get a bit lost. But then even if you go away for an hour or two, and um, you'll know from your own writing, Sean, and, and I think this is common for songwriters. They all carry around a, a little notebook writing bits and pieces so that when they a melody or an idea pops in their head, then, you know, they, they're not looking at a blank page. They've got all this material from different ages and times of their day and their lives and who they're talking to, and that makes a more interesting song, you know. That's what I, on, the, on, on the occasions I've done songwriting classes, which is almost impossible to teach, by the way, because I don't think you can see teach songwriting it's kind of something that you've either got or you haven't but there are various techniques and one and one of the things i always say to folks is you've got to if, if someone writes or says something or you overhear something really quite interesting or it's beautifully put um it's in your interest to get it down because it's something way down the track that might just fit into something that you're doing or then springboard you into the real meaning like sometimes i write songs and it's not until the very end i realize oh that's what the song's about yeah, right. Uh, I'm curious too, 
your songwriting relationships within the band? Because I, I was reading Keith Richards said recently that in the early days of the Stones, they were on tour together, they're sharing rooms together, they're sharing ideas all the time. But as they became successful, had families, you live in your own house, you're not sharing houses anymore, you're not sharing rooms anymore. So then you start exchanging ideas in a different way. How does it work with you guys now? I mean, do you all tend to pretty much finish a song, then bring it to the band? Or do you start things from the ground up together? Well, I guess we've done more of finishing off songs than we used to. I mean, but still these days, um, I'll always go to Jim, Jim Agini. You know, we we write, we started writing songs even before that first album, you know, way back before 78 when the so-called Blue Meanie album <laughs> came out. And even before then, you know, for, for a few years before that, we, we were, in fact, probably the first day we Jim and I met, when we were still in the mid-years at school, we, we, we got together and I started throwing melodies and lyrics up and Jim even then had, you know, um, extensive knowledge of chords and musicianship and then went on, went on, of course, to master keyboards as well as a variety of other instruments, not just guitar. And he sings, when, when Jim demos come in, you know, they're, they're, in, they're pretty much complete. Take a song like Change the Date from the Macarada Project. That was a complete Jim demo uh, where all the instruments he played and sang. And then a bit like some of the other songs, um, including his other song for Macarada, um, well, it, we, we mentioned already uh, Come On Down, but there's another Jim song there which he co-wrote with, uh, with Neil Murray called Wind In My Head, and that also has all these great collaborators. But uh, the demos tend to come in fully realised. But with Change the Date, you know, we were so lucky because... Um, John, our manager, was talking to Michael Honan, who's uh, Gurumal's uh, the amazing Gurumal Unipingu's musical director. And um, I think John asked Michael Honan whether there was anything we could possibly use for our project. And he said, yeah, well, there's, there's actually some outtakes from the last album that Dr G put out and um, a piece called White Cockatoo. So that, that was sent down and that, amazingly it fitted in instantly to the demo that Jim had brought in. So if you hear that song now, it's introduced with a groove with Gurumal singing this double track, beautiful melody, and then at the end of the song goes out with Gurumal by himself. And it absolutely makes the track. Alongside, I should add, some beautiful harmony work done uh, by Leah Flanagan, Ursula Jovich and Kalina Briggs, who sing those choruses there and also on a couple of other songs. Um, so, you know, I was saying before, you know, we've been so lucky with our choice of collaborators. I don't know whether we just got lucky with the folks that we chose. A lot of them we'd known before, people like Frank Yammer, who came in and sang a song by Pete called Desert Man, Desert Woman. Frank lives in Alice Springs and David Bridie recorded it for us and added some keys and vocals. That came back and uh, another song of Pete's sung by Alice Skye called Terror of Australia, which is just Jim on the piano. And Alice singing this really fragile vocal, which is quite beautiful. But it makes the, you know, the whole project a very varied piece of work. But, um, yeah, that our songwriting process within the oils, you know, has, has often been uh, me going to Jim with, with ideas and then Jim making those ideas more interesting by adding musical parts that he has, riffs mm. or, or different kinds of, uh, musical arrangements behind what are, the melodies and lyrics are brought in and 
many of the Midnight Oil songs that are best known were, were done that way with contributions by um, Pete and Martin has always been the great arranger, you know, very hard to get uh, ideas past Martin who, who has a great knack for picking out um, the, the good stuff but with a really good bedside manner. <laughs> That's the secret. Uh, I, Terror Australia is one of my favourite songs. It's it's almost so different to what you guys are known for and the way Alice sings it and that line, jails and guns and failure, and the arrangement and Jim's piano playing, the whole thing's beautifully done. Yeah, very. once again, a very different song for us, not least because Pete on that song and also with Frankie Ammer singing on Desert Man, Desert Woman, he, he relinquished lead vocals to our collaborators. That's something we've never done before. Who does the spoken word piece on Wind in My Head? So um, so we have quite a few collaborators on that song. Um, there were two versions at least that I heard before the Midnight Oil version of that song, but the minute Jim brought it in, we thought, yeah, that's got to be on the project. That's on our project. That's the perfect song for it. So um, we've got Sammy Butcher in language there as a drop-down part after the second chorus. Um Jim's worked extensively with Sammy Butcher, gone out to Papania and worked with him and Neil Murray. In fact, Jim produced an album for those two uh, not so long ago. And, um, of course, Sammy and the Rumpy Band we've, we've known since the uh, Blackfellow Whitefellow tour all those years ago. When was it? Back in uh, 80... 86, uh, I think, was it? Thank you, 86. And... Um, and um, and we've kept contact, you know. Jim, Jim and Pete particularly have been out that part of the desert, and Martin extensively. In fact, we've all all gone out, you know. Once the desert's in your blood, you go out all the time. That's something about that red dust and those amazing horizons that draws you back all the time. So we've all been out multiple times. So so a lot of the folks we've got to know over the years, and in including Uncle Kev Carmody, who finishes that song "Wind in My Head" with a a delightful piece at the end of the song in English, but um, it, it really is a, you know, once again, we were so lucky, everything that was sent in, because um, Kev recorded it at home in uh, in his place, I think it's regional Queensland, and sent it down and immediately fitted it into the track perfectly. Oh, it's wonderful. Um, Warren, we should mention, Warren Lidsey, that uh, produced the record for you. Or with you, uh, Warren had worked on Diesel and Dust, Blue Sky Mining, Capricornia. Was he an immediate choice? He had to be part of the project. Well, we had a few people in mind, um, but in the end, we thought we've got to go with Warren because when, um, he he just covers so many bases. You know, he's fantastic with the songwriting, honing honing songwriting ideas. He's a musician in his own right. So, you know, he can add musical ideas, different changes, bits and pieces, which we almost always incorporate. Um, he is an incredible engineer as well as producer. I mean, he can do it. He's like a one-man show. Over the years, he's also become fantastic mix, mixing producer engineer. And he was so patient with us, you know. When COVID came, um, he said, look, we've, we've got a little bit of time up our sleeve now. The albums have been all delayed. So any changes you want me to make, um, you know, to the songs or the mixes, just say, you know. A lot of producers would go, okay, well, this is, I've done my bit, you know, that's it. And um, but, And that was great because some of our 
some of our spokespeople that came in for the readings on the statement of the heart came in really late because they're busy people and whatever. And so by then, Warren was back in his hometown in Canada, and so we were sending new files ages after the the albums were finished, and this includes the second album, which is coming out next year. And and Warren was uh, extremely um, uh, generous in his time, never saying, I've done, you know, I've, I've finished. We just kept on throwing new things at him, and, and a great credit to him. He He's just... Um, very much a part of our history in our band, really, you know, and uh, we were so lucky all those years ago to find him. When you guys got back together and you decided to go on tour in 2017, did you think in the back of your heads that you had to make new music, that you were always going to make new music, or was it, or back then did you just think, no, we're just getting together to play some shows? Yeah, so I guess we got together 2016 and started rehearsing. We, the, the idea was to relearn the entire catalogue, and by then the catalogue had grown to over 170 songs. So we we spent months in rehearsal rooms, and Bonesy, of course, bass player Bonesy had to come back from the US, and so he, he was living in Sydney for a long time while we got the songs up to speed. And I was very keen even then to add some new material, but on that, I guess in that in the process of learning all the old songs, we didn't get around to learning any new ones back then, even though they were the songs were, or some of the songs were already written. So it wasn't until it wasn't until the European shows, the festivals last year, that we started adding a song, including the song Tarkine by Jim, which had, appears on the album next year. But um, we'd already done a few demos and sent them to producer Warren Livesey by then. Uh, but we. We had already so many songs in the set that we thought, oh, we'll wait till we record them so we actually know how they really go. And I think that was probably a good idea in retrospect. We've got so much material anyway. We're in a very lucky position that some bands that have been around for a while have, and that is you become a so-called catalogue band. So you can actually literally draw out, you know, B-sides or outtakes from years ago just for the hardcore fans, that we, our powder workers and the people that... Um, really love the band, and so that every every show can be different. Did you enjoy doing those album shows, particularly when you did the tour, where you'd focus on a particular record? So on occasions we thought, okay, why don't we just play an album from begin to end in order, you know, um, just to see if we could do it. And uh, so we took Diesel and Dust, and what else did we take? I think we took. Um, did you do ten to one one night? I think. I think we did 10 to 1. I'm not sure if we did. it got around to Blue Sky, but um, Blue Sky Mining. But, um, yeah, it was good for the band. And it was it was fortunate that we'd done all that homework <laughs> back in the studio so we could actually play it. And um, you know, it was quite nice. I mean, I know a lot of bands doing that now. In fact, they, I understand whole tours are and reformations are, are based on, you know, a particular album that, touched people years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, we didn't want to do that, but it was quite a nice challenge for the band and I think quite neat for audiences who didn't know we were going to do it. It was never advertised. We just sort of, okay, now we're going to play 10 to 1 from beginning to end, you know. And, um, and uh, yeah, it was, um, it was good. And we might, I don't know, it's something we might do again with, with the other albums like Capricornia, some of the lesser-known albums perhaps, Earth and Sun and Moon. I think you said to me uh, when the band first got back together, you happened, maybe you are in a, a store or something, a TV was on, they showed Goat Island, and you thought, oh, wow, 
we were that intense, we have to match that intensity. It must have been quite daunting getting back together and going back out there to play. Yeah, well, it took a while to get up to speed, you know, to get a <laughs> to get a head of steamer. Because, um, yeah, I mean, if you do look back on Midnight Oil concerts, then we do we do go at a, quite a rate. About eighty percent, ninety percent of the songs are pretty flat out, with a with a few slower songs just to break the pace, but not many. And and of course, in the middle of the shows, we have been often breaking it down to an acoustic step just to provide a change whereby Bonesy might play some acoustic bass and I'll play that stand-up drum kit and Jim and Martin play acoustic instruments. Pete play, Pete play a bit of harmonica and whatever. So um, just a variant. But basically it's, yeah, it's quite a workout, particularly <laughs> for drummers. And um, so... With the new material, particularly the album that's coming out next year, once again, most of it's flat out. So I don't know. I think I'm going to have to be doing a lot of soft sand running up Manly Beach <laughs> to get ready for it because <laughs> I don't want us to be banned, and this is the way we recorded as well. You want to be a, one of those bands that becomes very, you know, middle-paced and overproduced as they get on and everything's correct, in inverted commas, but ultimately lifeless. And I don't think that we can be a band like that. I think we've got to – I think we – we're delivering messages, hopefully, which are strong, and the music backing has to be equally strong or more so. And fundamentally, even though we make albums and make new music, we're a live band and always have been, right right back to the pub pub days from whence we came, you know. It, it was great seeing uh, Ray Argyle's documentary, Midnight All 1984, that popped out in the last couple of years. It must have been wonderful for you to look back and see, you know, I guess for you in the audience now sitting in the cinema to see that band playing live. <laughs> there were some funny moments. Um, our, our, tu- our tour manager Neil Thompson on a on a dial up phone. You know when all the all the Gen Xs and Gen Ys and Millennials just burst out laughing when I went to see the <laughs> first first showing, which was down in uh, Wollongong, and um, anyone under thirty five just burst out laughing to see because we used to put up our own posters, you know, in the early days and before any social media, so we, it was all word of mouth, or if you're lucky, a bit of radio play, not much in our case, except a little bit for the first album and then then eventually Double J come Triple J really, you know, took the band on it. And also public radio um, couldn't have done without the Triple X's, Triple Z's, um, triple, um, Melbourne was particularly strong for us. Um, Triple R. So we we um we had to find a different way than bands today to get to people. And basically, the only way we could think of doing it was, and we weren't doing Countdown, by the way, which you know immediately you've got a, a two or three million audience on a Sunday night. And we were never going to do that because that was we realised we were the wrong band for that show. That was all. We didn't have anything against the show, and we used to use we all used to watch it without admitting it. <laughs> but but we realised it wasn't it wouldn't be any good for our band. Um, so we we had to find a different way of doing it, which was just to play longer and harder than anyone else with a possible exception of other bands that were on the same circuit, including Rose Tattoo and uh, In Excess, Mental as Anything, Dragon, um, Cold Chisel, you know, there was a circuit of bands. We hardly ever saw each other because we were always in some different beer barn on a different night, but we'd play five or six nights a week and then the only time we'd stop would be 
to record and then, you know, in the odd band meeting and then and then we'd be out on the road again. And that was the way back then you could do it. You can't do it, I don't think, these days. Well, you certainly can't do it during pandemics. But you couldn't, even before COVID, you couldn't do it because there's just not the gigs. Back then there were myriad beer barns and RSLs and clubs all around the country and then increasingly open air shows we did when the 80s rolled around. And, and so we were one of those bands in the wake of ACDC that came up, you know, with, with live. And that remains the case. I don't think people really ever will get this band of ours if they are at all interested until you see us live. You know, Malcolm Gladwell had that book out a while ago, and it's an arbitrary figure, the idea of 10,000 hours, but you guys really did do your 10,000 hours in those pubs, didn't you? Oh, many more than that. <laughs> <laughs> we had a travelling exhibition from a while ago, and, and that part of the exhibition, uh, in amongst the um, posters and the old clobber that we used to wear and my old drum kit, Jim and Martin's guitars and um, Pete's sorry suit, all that kind of stuff. There, there was also a wall of shows, and it wasn't even complete. And it just went for, it just, it just read like the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, I, was like, I just looked at it and, and sort of uh, fell to my knees uh, <laughs> <laughs> with exhaustion, just thinking about how much road work. But we weren't the only ones, and we were very fortunate to have that circuit. Because what what happened was not only in Australia, but then when we started to go overseas in the early eighties and start to build a college crowd in in uh, Europe and the US and Canada, um, you know, we, the band was so strong live, it didn't matter what any live audience threw at us, we could, you know, we just hoe through it. We just, you know, we were just, we were just so, we were roadmen by then, you know, we just, <laughs> didn't matter. Yeah, even Queensland. <laughs> you know. I mean, for example, um, so we arrive at um, a gig at Bundaberg, I don't know, 79, 80, yeah. So Bjorki Peas is still there. And they don't want us in the – we've already been marched out of the state a few times by cops who would ring, you know, the back of our stages hoping that Pete would say something like fuck the cops or something and then we'd be frog-marched to the border, you know. And that, we were the only ones. Um, you know, you know, Iggy from Jimmy the Boys used to get chucked back over into New South Wales all the time as well for <laughs> – Things he said, but for example, we turn up one time at this gig in Bundaberg, and we go, "Where's the dressing room?" And they said, "We're building it for you." We said, "What are you building it from?" He said, "We're building it from four X slabs." He said, "Okay, when's it going to be ready?" He said, oh, "It'll be ready by the time, you know, uh, before you go on stage, so you can change." So they built this big dressing room out of four X slabs out the back of the pub, which was fine. But by the time we we got back off stage, dripping. The crowd had drunk our dressing room, so we were we were outside, dripping with nowhere to take naked, you know. But you know, did we throw a rock tantrum? No, this was just another thing that got thrown at you in the pubs in those days. Just another night on the road. You know, I was lucky enough to interview. Um uh, Bruce Springsteen a few days ago about his new album and he said it's the strangest thing in the world if you think about it that people meet as teenagers he's now 70 and they're still working together in no other industry in the world he said all those relationships you have to learn to navigate and so forth it must be a fascinating dynamic yeah so Jim and I met when we were 15 16 and um yeah we, we hit it off immediately and um uh, Jim's always had a great bedside manner with ideas that I brought in, and and um, and together we've written a huge number of uh, of, of songs, amazingly 
considering we we scratched together what was only seven or eight songs for the first album, and then and and that's that first album sold only about seven or eight thousand copies initially. We were on an independent label. Uh, that we call Powderworks after the first song on the first album back then, and then it wasn't later till we we gravitated to a, a major, which was CBS at the time, which became Sony, BMG, and then eventually Sony. So we kind of came from an independent background, and and that actually served us really well because um, um, it meant that we were able to, for our entire career, and still we're able to record the music that we want, choose our producer, choose the studio, choose the singles. Choose the, you know any collaborators, um, do the artwork, uh, organise the mixing ourselves, mastering, and then deliver it to the record company. And the record company, if they were lucky, might get you know to hear a couple of songs just at the very end. But we've never, no one in the industry has ever been involved in the actual recording process, which I think is essential for musicians or, or artists of any kind. You know, you've got to keep the industry at arm's length if you want to be happy with the result and that's what we've done and so yeah so you know Jim and I were really lucky to have then Andrew James with the bear joined on bass Pete came in auditioned and got the job as as a singer we did a couple of south coast tours under the name of farm Martin came in initially on bass when bear got sick and then went back to guitar and that was the original band that recorded um in the old Akadaka you know that um um what was it Albert's Albert's Boomerang's, yeah, studio um, in King Street, Sydney, in the midnight to dawn sessions because they were cheaper. So we'd play a gig and then come in at about midnight and then record until 9 o'clock in the morning when George and Harry would <laughs> start to come in and um, and we'd sort of blinded by the, the city lights of the morning with all the suits <laughs> arriving in their BMWs. We'd be staggering out of <laughs> Albert's and... Um, but you know you can hear on that first album of ours uh, that the, that was such a live band because all we did was just play the exact songs that we'd played, you know, for example at the Foster Tuncarry Hotel or whatever the night before, a few hours before, and then they came and played in the studio. And um, Keith Walker from Double J did a great great job of recording it. It's interesting. I guess now's the first time since the the nineteen fifties where the single or the EPs become very prominent again. You know, people are consuming music in different ways. It's very song-driven. Do you find that exciting? Yeah, it's come full circle in the time the band's been going, actually, because um, when we started, it was all about, oh, you've got to need a strong, you know, got to have a strong single or singles to drive the album. And then increasingly, the late 70s and the 80s, it was all about making a great album. And, and that's what the Oils always did. We always spent quite a bit of time with set list order on the album and, trying to find great beginnings and endings. And then, of course, it was vinyl back in those days, so you had to figure out good endings twice, beginnings and endings of both sides of the vinyl. And and uh, as I was saying before, we chose, you know, the songs in conjunction with management, with Gary Morris. Um, and, um, and even today, you know, we take, you know, management, John Watson's looking after us these days. We, we certainly take his opinion as well about, Singles, but fundamentally, we were one of those bands that made albums, and on a, on some occasions, we didn't even release singles at all. I, I don't mm. think uh, Head Injuries actually had a formal single. I think we just a few tracks were picked for airplay, but no singles were were dragged out. You know, I mean, we were. It's 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 
maybe easy to forget that we were a bloody-minded bunch of bastards and very hard to manage and, you know, fight against the world and uh, if anyone came near us in the recording studio or, um, or, you know, tried to stage dive or whatever, you know, Michael Lippold, our, initially our stage manager, then production manager, had this um, piece of lead pipe in his back pocket, colloquially known as the Wombat Basher, and people were summarily dismissed and then dragged out of shows. It was it was very male. It was um, very loud. The PAs were massive. It was Christians and the Lions. You know, you went into battle every day. Yeah. A lot of people were, were very drunk. Some of them were underage. There was a lot of broken glass at the end of the shows. There were fights, which Pete used to wade in with Michael Lippold and other crew members to sort out and then jump back on stage. Um, you know, they were breathless because they would throw, they would put, they would pack 180, sorry, they put they put 1,500 or 2,000 people into a, a place that was actually still just licensed for a wine bar with 170 people, you know, so that the possibility of death by suffocation or the fire yeah. or whatever, it was a lawless kind of thing where we started when we first started playing and you can hear that on the music we made, you know, particularly in those first albums. But that energy is something I think we still brought to, to the very, you know, last recording that we've done uh, just before Christmas last year. Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, I hear Gadigal Land, it sounds like a band's debut single. It just comes roaring at you. It's just a fantastic thing to bear witness to. I'm glad, glad you said that because, you know, if, it's, if it sits with other songs a bit like that with, you know, strong anthemic choruses and brass and, you know, really Jim and Martin hammering those guitars of theirs, um, um, songs like Best of the Birth Worlds or Power and Passion, whatever, you know, where there's that kind of song, Say Your Prayers. Um, mm. Sits well with those and that's great. Can't wait to play them live, actually, if, uh, if we ever get a chance. So what's the plan there, Rob? Obviously COVID's derailed everything and uh, made people housebound. I guess you know as much as anybody else, right, in terms of when we might see the band play live. So we had a whole bunch of shows cancelled, like every artist, every band did this year. Um, we were going to appear in Washington, D.C. as for 50 years of Earth Day uh, on the mall, you know, as in, you know, Washington, yes. D.C. mall, famous mall. And, um, and, of course, you know, that couldn't happen and probably wouldn't even happen next year. But And then, uh, then there are offers, you know, to do Splendour and then Dark Mofo. All, it all went by the wayside. So next year we have some offers. I won't even mention them because yeah. I might, they, might, they might fall over. But um, hopefully we can play some shows and do a, uh, the Macarada album almost in its entirety if our collaborators are available. Oh, that'd be amazing. It'll be a different kind of show from, from the oils if we can play the Macarada from beginning to end. Oh, that's wonderful, Rob. Well, thanks for your time today. It's been great to chat to you. I really love this, this mini-album whatever you might call it. Do you call it a mini album, an album? It feels like an album. It feels like there's enough scope and dimension in there to be an actual album, doesn't it? Yeah, it just happened to be seven or eight songs because um, th that's what the songwriters were were writing, not knowing <laughs> each of the songwriters were writing stuff on on this, you know, on this particular issue, this topic. But when we, when we had a writing session at my place and, and between the songwriters, we all went blah, you know, had all these songs for years that we weren't thinking, oh, that's a good midnight oil song, I'll keep that one aside, you know. So yeah. um, there, was, there was probably 22, 25 songs 
for two albums worth and, and then it was up to Warren Lizzie to sort of sort through which ones he thought. But we we thought, hang on, there's at least seven or eight songs on on this issue of uh, reconciliation in our country, which is this pressing issue. So we, we thought, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll corral them into one project. Well, and the new record, I guess this is out now, Macarada Project, and then the new album of Not All be coming out in April 2021? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <All right. laughs> but... but you know, we've all learned not to make too many promises because who knows. But I think I think one thing that has happened during COVID is that people's thirst for uh, new new material, whether it be literature, new films, new music, that's actually stronger than ever for people who can't get out. If you can't go to gigs, then you know you can look at some amazing gigs online. If you if you can't get out to uh, libraries or if you can't go to writers' festivals. You can pick up the new Richard Flanagan. Uh, you can um, you, know, you can pick up the new Craig Silvey. Um, you know, there's a wealth of new Australian uh, authors. You know that are coming out before Christmas. Um, Trent Dalton, of course. So, so you know, I think actually, um, as long as you're not, uh, as long as you weren't um, uh, existing from gig to gig, you know. Um, Playing, playing little little places and relying on residencies and whatever, and that that applies to a huge number of people in the music business. If you weren't relying on that, um, perhaps you can rely a little bit more on recorded music, mm. which it, because the demand for that seems to be greater than ever. Thanks for your time today. It's been great chatting about the the new record. Great chatting. Thanks so much. And congratulations again. It really is you know a pretty stunning piece of work. Thanks, Sean. Talk soon, mate. Uh, big thanks to Midnight All's Rob Hurst for joining us today on Sony Music Presents Time to Talk. Midnight All are donating their share of proceeds from the Makarada Project to organisations which seek to elevate the Uluru Statement from the Heart in particular and Indigenous reconciliation more broadly. Sony Music Entertainment Australia will match any artist contribution as well. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Sean Sennett, and we'll see you back here again very soon. <laughs>